Okay, Hebrews chapter 1. Honestly, it's, it's hard for me to find the words that can adequately express the privilege I feel this morning to preach about the one I love the most, my Savior, Jesus Christ, to a group of people, as John mentioned, that I carry on my heart, and a church that's part of a family of churches that I love the most. And I, as I grow older, that sense of privilege, it's only deepened for me as I ponder again what Christ has done for me in the gospel. And as Jill and I think about your example, Redemption Hill Church, just your gospel example and the impact that's had upon Jill and me and our family in growing in the gospel. You see, it's a beautiful thing when a family of churches stays centered on Christ and helps each other grow in Christ. And it is Jesus Christ who is the point of our sermon today. He's the topic title of my message is The Doctrine of Jesus Christ, and as Bart mentioned, uh, when you came in or maybe when you leave, you will pick up a, a, an expanded version of our new statement of faith, and I'm going to mention two sections, major sections of this statement of faith, the person of Jesus Christ and the saving work of Jesus Christ. Okay, Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. May God bless the preaching of His holy word. If you study the first 1,000 years of church history, you'll find theologians and church leaders working out the orthodox theology that we find in our statement of faith today. And one of those historic events was the Council of Nicaea that was convened on May 20th, 325 AD, and the main agenda item for this council meeting was to debate the divinity of Jesus Christ. See, there was a man by the name of Arius who was spreading this false teaching at that time that Jesus Christ was not co-eternal with God the Father, and therefore Jesus was not fully God. Now, at this meeting, Alexander was assigned to be the principal spokesperson who argued for the full deity of Jesus Christ. And a man by the name of Eusebius argued the Arian view. At the beginning of this council, it seemed that many leaders there were not well informed on this issue. 
However, their neutrality quickly evaporated when Arius, when they heard Arius's views explained more fully by Eusebius. See, as Eusebius began to explain the Arian position that denied the full deity of Jesus Christ, the leaders in that room became so angry that they grabbed Eusebius' notes out of his hands and they tore them to pieces. Now, that may seem like an extreme reaction until you consider that there were men sitting in that room who were still bearing the scars of persecution because of their devotion to Jesus Christ. The 5th century historian Theodoret writes, Paul, who was there from Neo-Caesarea, had been deprived the use of both of his hands because he was persecuted with a red-hot iron. There were other leaders in, sitting in that room had had, who had had their right eye gouged out, and other men there who had lost their right arm. In short, writes Theodoret, the council looked like an assembled army of martyrs. Why would these men, some of which who were still bearing their scars for their devotion to Jesus Christ, why would these men contend so fiercely for the truth that Jesus Christ is fully God? Because they knew that an Orthodox Christology regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ is foundational to all of theology. J.I. Packer writes this, Christology is the true hub which round the wheel of theology revolves and to which its separate spokes must each be correctly anchored if the wheel is not to be bent. Historic Christianity's most distinctive convictions are decisively shaped and determined by a proper understanding of the identity of Christ. See, our statement of faith is filled with Christianity's most distinctive convictions, which are decisively shaped and, in, and determined by a proper understanding of the, of the person and life, death, resurrection, ascension, and consummation of Jesus Christ, which is why we write this in the online introduction to our statement of faith. The statement of faith also makes explicit what is foundational to our doctrinal commitments. Here it is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the primary passion and the driving influence in our church's common life, worship, and mission. So what is your primary mission as a church and our primary passion as a family of churches? It is Christ and Him crucified. What is the driving influence for our common life together as a family of churches? It's living for the glory of Jesus Christ. What, what motivates our outreach to the lost? It's telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, Christology is foundational to your doctrinal commitments as a church, and because theology determines how we live, it's foundational in how we do our common life together. Now, our text is one of many in Scripture that gives us a, as Packer says, a proper understanding of the identity of Jesus Christ and His work in the gospel. 
The author of Hebrews begins this letter by telling us that God's progressive revelation is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Look again at verses 1 and the first half of verse 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The point of, those, of that verse and a half is that in these last days, no more revelation is needed to supplement what God the Father has revealed to us in His Son because Jesus Christ has fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to Him and all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Him. And what God has said to us in His Son does not contradict or replace what He spoke to us in the Old Testament. Rather, it completes God's progressive revelation. See, Christology is foundational for us to understand this progressive, redemptive story in our Bibles, and it's also foundational to the primary passion and the driving influence in this church and in all of the churches in Sovereign Grace. So three reasons why Christology is foundational. Number one, Christology is foundational to knowing the person of Jesus Christ. To knowing the person of Jesus Christ. In the person, the one person of Jesus Christ, we see two distinct natures. One human and one divine, which are inseparably joined together. Now, based on Scripture, the Council of Nicaea decisively concluded that Jesus Christ is fully God. And our text is one of many in Scripture that reveal the, the full deity of Jesus Christ. Look, look again at verse 2. So God's spoken to us through His Son, second half of verse 2, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Because Jesus is the one through whom God the Father created the world, we know that Jesus existed before creation, and therefore He is the pre-existent Son of God. As the statement of faith says, He is the eternal Son. So, sorry Arius, based on Hebrews 1, for example, you were wrong. And the verse, this, this text, verse 3, goes on to give us further examples, further truth that Jesus Christ is fully God. Look again at verse 3. He, meaning Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. And He, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. So in Jesus Christ, we see the exact imprint of the divine nature of God, and we know that he is the almighty God because he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, Scripture consistent reveals the full deity of Jesus Christ, which is captured this way in our statement of faith. In the fullness of time, God the Father sent His eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, 
into the world as Jesus Christ. And when God the Father sent His eternal Son into the world, we know that Christ, through the incarnation, took on a fully human nature. The Gospel of Luke tells us that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mark's Gospel says that He was born of the Virgin Mary. And in this stunning act of humility, God became man. When Jesus took on a full human nature with all of its attributes and its complexities and frailties and temptations, and yet as Hebrews 4.15 tells us, even though he was tempted in every way, Jesus was without sin. John's gospel says that the Word, meaning Christ, became flesh, meaning that the divine, eternal Son of God added a full human nature and thus now and forevermore subsists in those two natures which are inseparably joined together in the one person of Jesus Christ. And that's an important theological truth that we capture in our statement of faith. This is how we write it. In this union, two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in the one person of the divine Son without confusion, mixture, or change. That foundational truth, it's so important because it helps you to avoid historical heresies. For example, that move from Jesus from having two natures to Jesus being two persons like Nestorianism or from one person to him just having one nature like Eutychianism. It also explains how Jesus on the one hand can uphold the universe by the word of his power and on the other hand hunger and thirst and be tempted and grow weary and die. Are you weary this morning? Maybe you could relate. You're one of those moms who could relate to that prophetic impression that was shared earlier. Are you weary? Jesus knows it. Remember, he experienced weariness. He was asleep in that boat, right? When that storm, when that, on that violent storm. And yet, He had the power to calm that storm, and he possesses the power today to meet you in your weariness and to strengthen you. Are you carrying a lingering sadness or grief? Jesus feels it. He experienced sadness. He did weep at Lazarus' tomb, and yet he had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead. And that means that he not only understands your sadness, he has the power to comfort you in your grief and sadness. Are you lonely this morning? Jesus, he gets it. On the night that he was betrayed, on the night before his death, at his arrest, all of his friends abandoned him. And yet, because of his death, this morning, if you are in Christ, he calls you a friend. 
those temptations that you face daily, he understands every one of them. Scripture tells us that he was tempted in every way, and yet he was without sin. And so when we do sin, this morning, if you're in Christ because of his death, for your many sins, he does not condemn you. Rather, as we sang earlier, he offers you mercy and forgiveness. See, this two-nature doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ is not simply an abstract reality. It affects how we know Jesus, how we relate to Jesus, and it affects how God brought about salvation. For sinners like you and me. The Son of God, in obedience to, excuse me, to his Father, acts in and through both of his natures, his divine and his human nature, and is the only one who could accomplish salvation for sinners. So let me ask you: how do you know Jesus? You know him as God the Son incarnate, fully God and fully man, and is the only one who is able to be your all-sufficient Savior, which was why we write this in our statement of faith. As God's incarnate Son, our Lord Jesus Christ inaugurated the kingdom of God, fulfilling God's saving purposes in all of the Old Testament prophecies about the one to come. He is the seed of the woman. The woman. He is the seed of Abraham, the, the prophet like Moses, the priest in the order of Melchizedek, the son of David, the suffering servant, and God's appointed Messiah. See, there are sections in this statement of faith that just preach. So pick this up and read it and preach these truths to yourself to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, we, we must theologically know the person of Jesus Christ rightly to understand theologically his work in the gospel rightly. John Stott says this, If the essence of the atonement is substitution, the theological inference is that it is impossible to hold to the historic doctrine of the cross without holding the historic doctrine of Jesus Christ as the one and only God-man and mediator. The person and work of Christ belong together. It was not, it was not, if he was not who the apostles say he was, then he could not have done what the apostles say he did. The incarnation is indispensable to the atonement. See, we believe that Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God, and therefore only he could accomplish what his Father sent him to do. Which leads to the second point. Christology is foundational to understand the work of Jesus Christ. To understand the work of Jesus Christ. And our text clearly speaks to the work of Christ in the second half of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand 
of the majesty on high. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power is the one who humbled himself, becoming like a man, becoming our mediator, dying a substitutionary death on the cross in our place for our sins, and by doing so, as the text says, making purification for our sins. See, Jesus humbled himself in both life and death. And both of those were substitutionary in nature. See, acting in and through both his human and divine natures, only Jesus could be tempted in every way. And yet, as Hebrews 4.15 tells us, he was without sin and therefore only he could offer a perfect sacrifice because he lived a perfect life. And he offered that sacrifice on the cross in our place, making purification for my sins and for your sins. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah says it this way, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was chastisement that brought us peace. See, Scripture clearly teaches the penal substitutionary nature of the atonement. And that word penal, it means penalty or punishment. And so penal substitution simply means this. Someone else takes your punishment for you. You may have seen the picture out of the nation of Miramar about three or four weeks ago. As you know, the citizens are protesting in that nation against the military coup, the military takeover of the government. And in this particular picture, there is a crowd of protesters that are gathered there. And on the other side of the protesters are the government soldiers, rifles drawn seemingly ready to shoot into the crowd. And a nun walks right into the middle. In between the protesters and the government soldiers, she faces the government soldiers and she gets down on her knees and she stretches out her arms and she says to them, kill me instead. See, that that picture out of Miramar just a few weeks ago, it gives us just a bit of a glimpse of what happened at the cross. Jesus on that cross, he he stretches out his arms and he looks to his father and he says, kill me instead. He said the punishment that is theirs because of their many sins, give me that punishment instead. The, The righteous wrath that they deserve for their transgressions, pour it out upon me. Pour it all out upon me instead. See, Scripture teaches the penal substitutionary, penal substitutionary nature of the atonement, and that is the heart of the gospel. 
And because critics have attacked that particular theological doctrine for many centuries, it is one, brothers and sisters, you as a church and we as a family of church, we must fiercely defend which is why we include it in our statement of faith and we protect our churches with it because of our statement of faith. This is what we write. In his substitutionary death on behalf of his people, Christ offered himself by the Spirit as a perfect sacrifice which satisfied the demands of God's law by paying the full penalty for their sins. On the cross, Christ bore our sins, took our punishment, propitiated God's wrath against us, which means this, he appeased God's wrath so that you and I who are in Christ, we will never experience that wrath that we deserve vindicated God's righteousness, and by doing so, what that means for us is that we have been imputed with the righteousness of Christ and purchased our redemption in order that you and I might be reconciled to God. You see, brothers and sisters, there are places in this statement of faith, I'll say it again, that just preach. I would commend this section to you. Here's why. For Many, many years, due to the influence of Jerry Bridges and the leadership of our founder, C.J. Mahaney, one of the things that we have said is preach the gospel to yourself. It's something that we need to do each and every day. And so I commend this section of the statement of faith to you and that you would read it and preach the truth of the gospel to yourself so that we, you as a church, and that we as a family of churches can continue to grow in Jesus Christ. I I commend that section to you, and I urge you to do that because Redemption Hill, I know that you are a people who believe Jesus' words that he cried from the cross, it is finished. You believe those words, don't you? And when God the Father raised him from the dead three days later, vindicated that Jesus is the saving Messiah, accepting his saving work, we believe that the Father was pleased to accept Jesus' sacrifice as a complete sacrifice for sin. See, we believe that no further sacrifice is needed. We believe that there is no good work that we can do that can be added to what Christ has accomplished for us in the gospel because his atoning work is entirely efficacious, which is a gift of God that we receive through faith and repentance. We believe this. We believe that when Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, on that day, as it's described in Hebrews 1, he looked at his father and he said, job done. The work of salvation is fully done. He, we, we believe that it's completely done, and this is a the reason why that the gospel is the primary passion and influence in your church and in all of the churches in Sovereign Grace because Jesus did this. He paid it all. Our sins that have left a crimson stain, 
By his blood, he makes purification for sins, and he washes them away white as snow. Now, I would, believe, I would guess that most of you in this room believe or already know that truth I just preached. Here's the question. How does that truth, how's that Christological truth about his work, how does that shape how we live? Which leads to my third point. Christology is foundational to live for Christ. Christology is foundational to live for Christ. To live for Christ means this. It means that we are a people who stay centered on Christ because even though his saving work is done, his work in our lives continues as our prophet, priest, and king. As our great high priest, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, says that he now lives to make intercession for us, constantly pleading with his Father on our behalf. Dane Ortland says this, Christ's intersection is, intercession reflects how profoundly personal our rescue is. You see, he, he died for you. He rescued you. And right now, this very moment, he lives. And he's praying and he's interceding for you. It's amazing that we receive that kind of care from our Savior. From the Father's right hand, Christ, He pours out His Spirit on our lives, empowering us to have victory over sin and Satan and to empower us for the good works He's prepared for us to do. And when we do sin, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says that we have an advocate, and that advocate, His name is Jesus who is standing right at our side, constantly advocating before the Father on our behalf. John Bunyan says, wrote this, Satan must be speechless after a plea from our advocate. That's good news, isn't it? See, when, when you and I, when we are prone to wander, we are held fast because Christ, He is the steadfast and sure anchor of our souls. When we are perplexed and we're just not sure what God is doing in our life, we are also people who are not driven to despair because we have a king and his name is Jesus and he's governing the affairs of our lives and not only our own life but the affairs of the nations. When we are rejected and marginalized for being Christians, we are not forsaken because we are people that know that nothing will separate us from the love of God that is ours in Jesus Christ. When we are sorrowful because of trials and because of suffering, we are yet people who are yet always rejoicing because we have a great high priest, as Hebrews tells us, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, with our sorrow, and he even carries our sorrow with us. The point is this, to live for Christ means that we are people who stay centered on Jesus Christ. Let me, let me close with this. 
The world that we live in defines itself by what it is against. And we want to be a people who are defined by what we are for. And what are we for? We are for the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all of life. We are for Jesus being exalted in our homes, in our relationships, in our workplaces, and in our communities. We are for seeking, we are people who are seeking the glory of the Lord and not our own fame in all that we do. By God's grace, we want to pursue an abiding joy in Christ, an overflowing gratitude for Christ, a growing obedience to Christ, a sacrificial generosity motivated by Christ, because these are all tangible expressions that we are a people that live for Jesus Christ. Why do we want to be known for this? Because Jesus, he paid it all. And brothers and sisters, all to him we owe. Our sin that left a crimson stain by his shed blood, he washed it all away white as snow. Oh, praise the one who paid our debt, amen? And praise the one who raised our lives up from the dead. Hallelujah. Praise Him. Let's sing to Him and give Christ glory.